Okay, so hello and welcome to the ninth WEM Academy live session on expedition medicine. So in this session, we're going to be exploring how you can break into the world of expedition medicine by hearing from our extreme panelists. So my name is Owen Walker. I'm the WEM trauma lead and critical care paramedic. And today I'm joined by three absolute legends um, in their own right. So uh, firstly, Mark Hannaford. Mark is the founder of WEM with over 25 years experience of, uh, of expedition work in all continents. He's the founder of the WEM conference and the MSc in extreme medicine. Legends. So he also is on the faculty of the University of uh, Texas uh, in space aviation course. And as the founder of WEM, he's helped raise 103, over 103 million uh, for charities. He's a fellow of the pre prestigious New York-based Explorers Club and a fellow of the Royal Geographical Society as well. He's an honorary aquanaut and also a former Special Forces soldier. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Owen. So next we've got Emma Figures. So Emma's a, a GP trainee uh, with a background in medical education, uh, expedition um, medicine and humanitarian medicine. Her career highlights include working at the UN in Geneva, teaching in China, Nepal, and the tiny Caribbean island of Sabah, volunteering in an orphanage in Zambia, to, um, uh, tsunami camps in Sri Lanka and refugee camps in Greece. This is all, all on top of working as an ex expedition medic in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Iceland and Tanzania. Welcome, Emma. Thanks. Pleasure. And then we've got Taryn Anderson. So Taryn is a qualified nurse from Australia, specialising in public health and tropical medicine. And since leaving the military, he's moved to the UK nearly six years ago. Uh, she's worked around the world as part of the humanitarian response, including Sierra Leone for the Ebola uh, epidemic, Iraq during the Battle for Mo Mosul, as well as responding to disaster relief efforts in Mozambique, Nepal and Haiti. She's led teams of nurses on volunteer programs to Nepal, Kenya and provided uh, and Kenya and provided uh, medical support for cadets in remote parts of Australia and worked with WEM on TV productions in the South Pacific. She currently lives uh, and works in Hampshire with her husband and temperamental foster cat called Snuggles, who I have actually seen already on this on this call. So uh, welcome, excuse Snuggles for the interruptions. <laughs> Good to be here. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So in this session, guys, we're going to be exploring uh, a number of facets. We're going to be looking at um, what experience and qualifications that you might need for expedition medicine, what personal qualities are important for expedition work, um, what resources are available for, for you to upskill and or indeed access uh, expedition medicine, um, how you fit expeditions around your clinical career and or family roles, um, how, you, how and, and where to access uh, medical indemnity for expedition medicine, and looking at the, tr at the changing uh, climate due to the pandemic and, and the landscape uh, post-pandemic and how that might affect it. Okay, so what I'm going to do guys, is just pose my first question. And I'm just going to really open up the domain and, um, and start from the start. So Mark, I'd just like you to, uh, to ask you if that's all right, um, what you perceive expedition medicine to be. So what is it from, 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 your, from your definition? I think it's um, when we first started, uh, when we were working with large groups of doctors who were who were using to cover some of the expeditionary activities that we were undertaking. You know, originally when we, we set up our expedition company, it was, it was friends. It was people we knew who were doctors and generally in the local ED department. And this was a while ago. So, and things have evolved since then. So the, the, the you know, people working in expeditions is far wider than it was when we first started. And we chose those people because they were outdoor people. And then as we did more and more, we found that the, the people that, we, that were friends of friends and other people that were beginning to work with us came from hospital environments and GP environments um, from, from paramedics and they needed more training in terms of working in our environment where the, there wasn't an awful lot of other, there weren't a lot of other people to, to help out. There weren't a lot of other people to talk problems through. It was low resource, there was no power, so the equipment they would normally rely on wasn't going to work. Um, and so we set up a training course internally for our own expedition medicine company and then also uh, for our own expedition company. 
And almost by consensus, the, the team asked us to make this public because there were so many other medics that would benefit from the training that we were doing purely internally. And that's kind of really where the genesis of the of expedition medicine came from. It was we well, in fact, we ran our first course about 18 years ago in the Lake District, and doctors turned up, we had a great time and it was sustainable. And we, you know, we and we realized actually it was adding something to the medical community that wasn't wasn't there previously in in a sort of in a formalized manner. I think since then the opportunities for expedition medicine you know, have exploded and evolved to quite considerably to cover, you know, opportunities also within humanitarian medicine, within uh, military medicine, working in, in remote areas, you know, responding to sudden onset disasters. So I think where we started 20 years ago, sort of just doing expedition medicine purely on expeditions has now changed and morphed, you know, and I think one of our aims is to break down the silos between those different areas, so actually share knowledge across the different disciplines, but also opportunities and allow people to, to have a multifaceted expedition medicine, extreme medicine career where they do some humanitarian, they do some um, expedition, pure expedition stuff, but they might do sudden onset disaster responses, stuff like that. So it's evolved quite a long. So I think the, the definition of expedition medicine is now much wider than it used to be. Fantastic. Fantastic. So um Turin or uh, or in or indeed uh, Emma what um what healthy what's the healthy baseline of experience and or qualifications if you're a medic uh starting your expedition expedition career what would you what would you aspire to go in with and or, or indeed what did you guys go in with um I, I'm happy to speak to that and then I'll let Emma give her two cents um obviously I come from a different background from a lot of expedition medics in that I come from a nursing background which isn't traditionally I guess the home of expeditionary medicine but to my mind certainly has a lot of value to add um I, I think some of the key things that you really need to consider before putting yourself in some of these more remote isolated and extreme environments is your own skill level and your own comfort and practicing independently and as a nurse working in a hospital um, you often do get the chance to sort of become very proficient at what you're doing but you're working as part of a multidisciplinary team and you've always got that support you've always got someone there you've always got the kit that you're familiar with in your department so being able to take that skill set and that knowledge that you have and start to apply it to some of these environments where you're working from the kit on your back you need to start to develop ways to um develop your independence within that and that can come through working in um, some more remote areas perhaps in a supported manner to begin with um, whether or not you're shadowing someone whether or not you're working with an organization that um, allows you to do that if you're going on an expedition for example um, as an expedition leader or bringing another skill set then you can start to shadow that medic kind of role through to really develop your independence and your confidence in that environment so I think it's definitely having the self-awareness of what you bring to the team but also what you need from both an emergency response but also from a primary health care perspective. Fantastic. Emma? Okay, I'm going to speak. I don't know if it's still your face or my voice that's coming out. So you probably sound quite feminine now, Owen. <laughs> I think I think I think the disparity is. I think on um, Zoom, I think everyone can see us on Zoom. I think on Facebook, it's just my face. I think. Oh, that, there you go. But I believe people can still hear you. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Um, so in terms of a sort of baseline of experience and qualifications as a medic, as a doctor, um, I would say definitely sort of not before F2, because um, I'd say F1 and F2, you kind of get your grounding really in sort of learning how to be a junior doctor and sort of just finding your feet when you've got the team around you, as Taryn was talking a little bit about. And as an expedition medic, you often you'll go and not have that team support. Um, I think definitely getting experience in A&E is really important. Um, and if you can get some experience in GP as well, um, that's really valuable because a lot of the time it's not necessarily the kind of high scale trauma stuff that you'll be seeing, but it will be the more sort of run of the mill gastroenteritis and stuff like that that you're going to be coming up against. Um, I expect we'll touch on that later. 
Um, but then I think it's also important to not just think about getting your clinical experience under your belt, but also making sure that you're happy and comfortable in the environment that you're working in. So whether it's working out in the desert or the jungle or up a mountain, just being happy that you yourself are confident, for example, at altitude, um, because you don't want to be worrying about that on top of worrying about the patients or well, the participants that you're kind of taking out there. Um, so thinking about your clinical experience, but also your outdoor environmental experience is really important. Fantastic, fantastic. And just from a paramedic perspective, I totally agree with what Taryn and uh, Emma were saying. I'd say two years as a minimum. Um, you've got to see a healthy exposure of patients, Be certainly get, get exposure to a diverse range of patients. And probably as a paramedic, what I'd, I'd aspire to do is maybe do a, um, a suturing course and or advanced wound course. Um, and potentially spend some time with some GPs. They're fantastic people, um, but they. But you will be seeing a primary, primarily a caseload of of, of primary care. So you just def definitely spend time with GPs. Definitely do some advanced wound care, and I would definitely aspire to go in with two years experience. Great. Okay. So my next question to the panel would be: um, What are some of the personal qualities that you guys perceive are valuable to embark on an expedition? I think um, one of the one of the big things about expedition medicine and working in extreme environments is actually those personal attributes. Um, often and almost always, you're never working solo, so you're having to work with at least one other person, but generally a fair number more. Um, and being able to to get on with those individuals and work as a team is it you know is probably ex, ex, you know one of the most important facets of of the type of medicine that we're doing. Um, you know, for me as a, an expedition leader, I would often, if I had two similarly qualified people, maybe one slightly less experienced, you know, but if the less experienced one was able to get on with the team better and were, were better at that, you know, just easier to work with, they would probably get the preference, to be honest. Um, but I think one of the big benefits of doing this type of medicine is those team working skills that you do learn and leadership skills that you do learn when you're away doing this type of medicine, whether it's humanitarian medicine, whether it's expedition medicine, you know, you bring that stuff back into your normal, normal clinical career. And I would argue, actually, you know, you come back almost a better nurse, paramedic, doctor, having done a deployment overseas in whatever form that is. So I think, you know, adaptability, problem solving and being happy to work, you know, by yourself. And I think going back to what Emma said slightly earlier on in terms of preparation, you know, you need to be comfortable doing that stuff by yourself because often you will be the only medic there might be another one there might be somebody else there with you or you might be able to reach back in terms of a sat phone call but you need to be comfortable that you're going to be a solo operator fantastic that's me <laughs> yeah i think i would go along with what um mark was saying in terms of just being able to work with your team whether that's the expedition leader that you're there with but also just the rest of the participants because you want to be someone who is personable and people are going to enjoy spending however many weeks or however long you're spending together. Um, you have to be somebody who I think is going to be positive because things aren't always going to go your way. It might be rainy, it might be cold, it might be miserable, people will be tired, people might not like the food. And so you have to kind of be able to still be positive and upbeat when you first get up in the morning, even if you haven't had a lot of sleep and you're aching as well. Um, I think that's important. And then also just being able to be flexible um, and adaptable because plans change um, and you know itineraries might change based on the circumstances that you're in so I think being able to sort of think creatively and be flexible on your feet is really good flexible whether that's just like you know physically flexible or mentally flex flexible both are good absolutely yeah, I have to definitely agree with both what Mark and Emma have said, that the soft skills are just as key as the clinical skills. I think it's quite a privileged role that you play as the team medic in that often you might be the other responsible person that the expedition team leader might be using to bounce ideas off. You need to be coming up with a plan together in terms of if there is a casualty, how are you going to medically evacuate them? You are 
helping out with the occupational health and safety? Is it actually safe to do what we're planning to do for that day going forward? Is it too hot? How do we manage that? And these are all discussions that you end up having. But as well as that sort of responsibility that you have with that leadership and management, you also have to have a high level of emotional intelligence, I'd say, in terms of you need to be monitoring changes in behaviour of every participant that's on that expedition with you you will find that there as well as primary health care that a lot of mental health conditions will also come through as a result of people pushing the boundaries which is what they want to do but often it's a lot of people that are potentially trying to escape something or trying to undergo some change in their life so I think having those relationships with the team are really key and being able to actually start to implement some changes or have some strategies if someone starts to withdraw or actually do something along those lines. So yeah, I think soft skills just as important as clinical skills and yeah. So my next question to Taryn and to Emma would be, so what, what kind of clinical presentations have you seen on Expedition? And as a caveat to that question might be also, what's, what clinical cases have really pushed you in, in your clinical practice on Expedition? I, I, th I think Emma's gesturing at me to go first on that one. I think commonly it is your daily bread and butter is your coughs, colds, diarrhea, managing blisters, foot care, sunburn. It's all of that health promotion, starting to look after people and sort of making sure that they're doing the things that they need to do so that they don't end up feeling worse during the course of the day and look after their own health. Um, in Fiji, one of our big issues was a lot of wound care around things like coral cuts. Um, so obviously everyone was in the ocean, so there was a lot of ear infections, a lot of weird and wacky bacterial presentations that came through in the wounds that had huge impacts potentially on people's ability to continue performing going forward. So I think it really depends on the environment that you're working. If you're working on a kayak expedition, for example, it's going to be a completely different set of case presentations to, for example, if you're at altitude or um, working in a polar environment as compared to a desert. So I think definitely a lot of um, research before you actually go onto any of these trips in terms of what you're likely to expect going forward would be key. Emma? Um, well, it just reminded me because uh, Taryn and I worked together in Fiji and when she was talking about all sorts of weird and wonderful um, bacterial infections, um, I personally, um, as one of the medics out there, ended up with um, quite a nasty um, bacterial infection that caused all sorts of abscesses. So just be aware that you as the medic are not immune and you also might end up um, getting all sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> but I suppose in terms of um, just the run of the mill things, I think you often might expect and kind of you need to prepare for the worst. You need to prepare for like the major RTC or, you know, huge trauma where everybody falls off the side of a mountain or something. But actually, um, often the run of the mill things that you are going to be seeing are blisters, sunburn, dehydration, uh, upset stomachs from eating interesting foods. Um, and I think that's why prevention often is really important. It's the less sexy side of expedition medicine, but it's so vital, I think, just in terms of briefing people and talking to people as you go along about making sure that they are putting on their sun cream and drinking plenty of water um, and eating food, even if they don't feel hungry at altitude. Things like that can just really help the experience for you as the medic and for the team be a lot better and more enjoyable for everybody. Um, I think as well, kind of thinking about what we were talking about earlier, about what sort of person you need to be. I think if you're not somebody that is approachable, people won't come to you early about their perhaps groin rash that they've got going on or something. It can end up progressing to be a lot, a lot worse if people don't um, feel comfortable to come and speak to you early about things. Um, and then did you also ask about um, like a case that has pushed us clinically? Um, so... The most memorable for me is um, <clears throat> on my second expedition, um, it was Kilimanjaro. Um, and we had um, a young man who had a brain tumor that was due to be um, operated on a few weeks after climbing to Kilimanjaro. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, space occupying lesion plus altitude, like thinking along the lines of cerebral edema, the two don't go that well together. Um, 
So he was really very unwell um, and that was extremely challenging in terms of trying to kind of keep him safe and look after him, but then also look after the rest of your team because you've got everybody there that you're kind of needing to look after and try and make sure everybody stays alive and comes home safely and happily. And luckily he, he did, um, but that was, that was pretty stressful um, uh, and rewarding ultimately because in the end, everybody survived and everybody came home happy. So, yeah. Oh, and I, think, um, oh, and I think the other thing that with that medics going away need to be to be aware of and certainly as an expedition leader I've come across it um, quite a few times is that even when there are medical forms um, for the trip or the expedition or the event um, often people won't be completely truthful on those those medical forms but the there are, there are a, um, a proportion of the population that will use the trip as, a, as an escape from difficulties that are going on in their own life. And so, you know, not ignoring the mental health element and the, the, the presentations of, on that on expeditions and trips, when people are often um, getting their sleep because their sleep's being interrupted, whether that's because of the travel or the, the sleeping conditions, when they're, when they're tired. And once the initial excitement of the start of a trip um, is over. Sometimes you can see them presenting themselves and they can be tricky. Mental health problems in a remote envir environment are tricky to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, Mark. So a question to you, Mark, um, really would be as well, um, just from a non-clinical perspective, what are some of the roles that's, that have challenged you most? And then on the back of that, sort of what are the roles that are available to non-clinicians? So I guess, I mean, one of the... Um, some of the most tricky stuff that we we've dealt with in that sort of expedition medicine medic role are the mental health stuff because in a, as i said in a remote environment it there's little you can do and they're quite they're, they're quite tricky when they're presenting themselves um i think one of the uh the most interesting evacuations we've done is coming down the side of a mountain in uh kyrgyzstan where somebody badly broke their leg and realizing and we took them you know this I mean, we're on the side of a mountain, but the stretcher had to be built. And one of actually one in that stretcher building setup. And in fact, we were working with a team that had just finished summiting Everest. So they were really fit, really motivated, but really used to working together. And my team was similarly placed. We were really used to working together and super motivated. But one of the really good things I saw about that evacuation, because preparing the casualty for the carry down the mountain. You know, it took a while in itself and it was quite cold on the mountain, quite exposed. You know, you're then starting to look at not the casualty, but the people who are around the, the party, the people who aren't involved in, and perhaps standing idly. You know, they're the ones you need then to start looking at and managing in terms of hyperthermia risk and risk like that. One of the great things I saw at that was somebody immediately started building a fire and putting a cup of tea on, passing that around and engaging the people that are standing by the side who weren't engaged in the in the physical extraction and treatment of that casualty. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we um, we took them to the nearest town in Kyrgyzstan, which naturally, of course, didn't have any power, so we couldn't get an X-ray. But they got the generator fixed. They got the X-ray, and the and the uh, the surgeons there have a remarkable doctor's uniform, which seems to involve like a massive chef's hat. So there were these stories coming back from the team about these chefs coming into the uh, into the X-ray room and and sort of. Um, so we decided to to take them across the border and uh, into into Uzbekistan and fly them out of Tashkent. Now, then there's the the things about working in a strange, uh, a different system. You know, we needed to get them to a hospital to stabilise them so that the medic going back with them, because we'd already talked to the insurance company, you know, had them kind of stable and stable and packaged up, ready to go. But then you need to get an ambulance from there to the to the to the airport. You know, and Essentially, there aren't any ambulances, and the ambulances that are need to be paid for with cash. So you need to, you know, have, have remembered to report contingency contingency from one of you. You needed in that evacuation taken to have taken your passport. But remarkably, because the efficiency of both the local team, you know, and the and the the standard at that time at that time that our team were operating, you know, we got them back from the point of injury in the the Tenshan Mountains back to a London hospital within 17 hours. I mean, fortunately, there was also an international flight that helped with that. But that was one of the um, that was one of the evacuate. I mean, there are quite a few actually, but that was the one that stands out as being um, complicated. You know, painful for the for the casualty, but as a team dealing with, also quite 
exciting and you know motivating because you your, your focus is entirely getting that person to the next level of care but at the same time making sure you don't have casualties in the in the people that are engaged in that rescue and i i think what i'm getting from from you mark and all three of you really is just your ability to troubleshoot and and also the the actual the amount of time practicing medicine versus the amount of time managing the team looking at human factors being a team player is really it really the real weight is actually not in medicine at all now that will play a part but from all three of your answers what i'm getting is you really need to be dynamic and flexible and actually be a be a team player fundamentally and and look at troubleshooting all aspects of uh, of of the team which which comes up um some of which are logistical some of which are communication some of which are team based some of which are individual based and then some of which might be medical as well so it's a real it's a real meld of both technical and non-technical skills within 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 expedition medicine which makes sense okay so my next question um to all three of you would be um from your perspectives what resources are available um for people watching if if they want to do some background research into expedition medicine sure yeah um i'll kick it off it's always a bit uncertain to know who's going to speak in this style of stuff isn't it um so in terms of kind of learning a bit more um there's all sorts of resources so you could look at the oxford handbook of expedition medicine if you want to kind of get more into sort of nitty-gritty and the theory and see what kind of cases you might be up against and just sort of basic management plans um and then there's lots of courses that you can go on um so i would certainly recommend going on an expedition medicine course before you decide to embark on any expedition medicine that's what i did in f2 and that really helped when I was having interviews with various expedition medicine companies. They wanted to know when had I been to altitude before, two, um, had I like had experience of being outdoors, three, had I worked in A and four, had I done an expedition medicine course. So I think just being able to kind of get on a course um, and then that will give you some sort of more basic background and experience that's really helpful. Um, other reading, and um, there's all sorts of manuals and things out there. There's the WEM Academy at the moment, which is doing various panels of course a little plug for that um but I think um also rather than just doing reading I think speaking to people who've done it is certainly for me a way of finding out a bit more about um you know just what it's really like um and learning what their experience has been like is really important fantastic and uh, Taryn um, I think, as you mentioned earlier, wound care is such a huge thing in these environments. So if you can get on a wound care course, brilliant. If you can learn how to suture, that's another tool in your belt that you're able to bring to the team. It may not be one that you use on a regular basis, but keeping those skills constant and up to date is really quite key. One thing I found quite helpful just in terms of um, infectious diseases is obviously having that knowledge and sort of expanding your skills, whether or not from a nursing perspective, you go and do a tropical nursing course or a tropical medicine course. In London, I think Liverpool and Glasgow, they do some um, shorter or, or more extensive courses if you're interested. I think they're always really interesting considering a lot of the remote environments you go to, tropical environments are... I come with a whole wealth of, of challenges and issues and just opening your eyes to a few of those uh, both concepts and potential treatment modalities and issues around that is quite key. Um, yeah. Also, oh, thank you. WEM courses are brilliant. Um, also getting onto the WEM conference is great just in terms of being able to have a chat all of the faculty are generally there. They're really approachable, as are the people that present. And I think being able to speak with people one-on-one -on -one is such an invaluable opportunity to actually um, ask those questions that you don't necessarily get to ask in these forums. Um, just sort of pump them for information, ask questions, don't be shy. I think I've learned so much from the conferences I've attended. And yeah, no, I can't speak more highly of them. Fantastic. And Mark, from your perspective? I think, um, you know, not wanting to repeat what Aaron and Taryn have said, I think it's 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 putting yourself in the way of opportunities, isn't it? It's going on courses, whether they're WEM courses or whether they're others, but it's meeting people and networking. And I think the conference and conferences are a great way. In fact, you know, we we all I organised the WEM conference, but it's the first conference I'd ever really been to. But meeting people there really changes your outlook on, on and your direction and, and opens your mind to opportunities. Um, and I hadn't quite 
appreciated the value of conferences, getting people together, but really they are invaluable in terms of finding out you know, what's out there and the people that you need to speak to in order to, 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 to make those opportunities happen. So I think it's about, it's about networking, it's about going out and meeting people, it's about doing courses, acquire, acquiring key skills that you know you're going to use. Um, and, then, and then often opportunities and jobs won't knock on your door, you need to go and find them. So you need to be dynamic in that. Um, and the more people you meet, the more places you go, the more courses you go and the more conferences you go to, the greater the chances of, of you getting to where you want to get to. Can I add a follow-in from what Taryn and Mark have just said? So um, Taryn mentioned the um, tropical medicine courses and MSF also run one that it, you can do remotely from anywhere and it's a fraction of the cost. Um, so it's worth looking at the MSF course and that will provide you with really good experience. And then going on from what um, Mark was saying in terms of kind of just putting yourself out there. After I went on an expedition medicine course in my FT, they gave us a whole list of different companies. And there's so many different companies out there that are looking for expedition medics. And so I just kind of bombarded all of them um, and sent them lots of emails, said, this is my CV, are you interested? And you just really have to kind of go out there and put yourself out there. And it, you won't be a perfect fit for every company or every expedition. But once you kind of get onto one and get your foot in, as long as everybody comes back alive and happy, generally, they're happy with you and then you're able to then it opens other doors you meet more people um and it, it definitely kind of roller coasters from there fantastic so guys from your perspective um how do you or how have you achieved a balance healthy balance in your life from sort of a family perspective and or um and and or professional perspective because uh, one thing about medicine is there's it's quite formulaic and there is a a, quite a, a regimented uh, training pathway. How have you guys navigated both family and or clinical training alongside an expedition medicine career? Do you want me to go first or someone else want to go? <laughs> okay, um, well, I don't have a family. Maybe that's the reason I don't have a family because I'm out of the country all the time. <laughs> um, so I haven't had to worry too much about um, juggling those too. but in terms of juggling your career and juggling expedition medicine I think you either have to be um, really organized in terms of trying to plan leave so it is possible um, depending on your rate of coordinator if you have the dates you can make it fit in with your leave sometimes you can do it that way um, but otherwise you have to take time out and um, so I took a year out after F2 which turned into four years out um, because lots of other more exciting opportunities came along. So I think not being afraid to take time out of training is the first step, because I think so often you're told as a doctor, you know, you kind of, people do their A-levels, they do medical school, they do their foundation training, they do the specialty training, you end up getting stuck on this kind of almost sausage factory line. <laughs> and actually there's so many other opportunities out there and you can take time out. And as Mark was saying earlier, the time that you take out and do, if you're doing something productive and exciting um, like expedition medicine the skills that you're going to bring back are amazing you know bringing back the team working skills and the clinical confidence and things um, it's really going to enhance not just your career but your life um, and you can also take time out once you're in specialty training so I actually was taking time out this year from GP training um, and was meant to be climbing Everest Base Camp last month as the medic and I should be in Jordan cycling right now but obviously Covid has hit um, so you know it's all about being flexible and adaptable and I'm now working from home with public health which is a bit different than what I was planning um, but I think ultimately don't be afraid to take time out and seize opportunities and it is possible to fit everything in if you just have that kind of proactive positive attitude. Fantastic. So just before we take any other questions, I'm just mindful, just looking at the uh, Facebook Live, we have a few questions that I just want to kind of answer whilst ever they are, they are visible in front of me. So Hannah was just asking about uh, more formal qualifications, PG certs, the several options, as well as the WEM course, um, just cost, content, abroad requirements. So there is uh, a post-graduate uh, uh, certifications you can take. Uh, we, we've got the... Um, Extreme Medicine, MSc, but you can step off on the first year, I believe, um, and, and get a PG Cert in Extreme Medicine. That's a possibility. Um, there is uh, other courses as well. I'll re revert to the panelists for other courses. You can take more formalized uh, university courses. Silence. <laughs> 
I believe, so I believe that there is uh, a few courses. Uh, I believe there's a course in uh, the Royal College of Surgeons run an extreme medicine course, which you can get a diploma from um, and or a PG cert from. Um, so that's an option as well. Um, and also just looking at, um, so just, and that was just to answer your question, Hannah. And Benjamin I guess there's also um, the, there's like mountain medicine uh, diplomas that you can go in as well. And then there's a conflict and catastrophe medicine course that is run in London. Um, the diploma in tropical medicine that um, Taryn talked about. Am I muted or can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then um, uh, what else? The global health and humanitarian medicine course. Oh. Where is that coming from? Um, because uh, diplomas in immediate care as well. Oh yeah, there's like the pre-hospital um, care diplomas and things. Yeah. You can do. They're really good, aren't they? Do you know more about those, Owen? Say that again. Um, like the pre-hospital trauma courses. Yes, I think they would be good. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a number of ones you can do uh, in a formalized fashion. So that would be um, that would be the, the Royal College of Surgeons run, run a diploma in immediate medical care. And um, that's a two day course up in Edinburgh. Um, so that's uh, and then they run a fellowship in immediate medical care as well. Um, and then we are um, we are looking to run an online trauma course within the uh, within the University of Exeter. And that's a work in progress, but that should come out hopefully next year. Um, and there'll be some credits around that as well. Um, and um, there is, there's a number of other courses as well. Those, those are the ones, more the short courses you can do. And then there is MSCs as well. So there's the MSc in resuscitation and extreme uh, um, and uh, emergency medicine at Queen Mary's in, in East London. But there is, uh, there's a whole card array of, of courses you can, you can do with more formalized um, uh, CPD and or, um, and or credits. Good. Owen, there's a couple of questions here. There's, um, what was the remote tropical course again, please? I'm not sure. I think that might be you, Emma, who mentioned that. Oh, yeah, so that's, um, it's run by MSF and it's called the Global GHHM, Global Humanitarian Global Health and Global Health and Humanitarian Medicine, um, run by MSF, and it's over about eight months, and it's part time. It's Wednesday evenings, um, and then there's self-directed learning that you do alongside that. And at the end of it, you can do the diploma in tropical medicine. Emma, if you if you wouldn't mind at the end of the um, transmission of the broadcast, whatever we're calling this, putting that in yeah. the in the in the comments, I think people would appreciate that. Yeah. And Owen, there's another question because I know you're trying to manage everything from that. And I can see the Facebook questions a bit easier, perhaps. Um, whether there was a, any suggestions for a wound management course. I'm not sure that we covered that in detail yet in terms of particular courses. So I'll go for the one that I used uh, as a paramedic. And that was uh, and that was uh, an advanced wound closure course at King's. Uh, College hos Hospital um, in South London. So that was a one-day course with an advanced nurse practitioner, um, and that was covered around. That covered suturing, that covered gluing, uh, that covered wound assessment, um, and adhesive, non-adhesive options, uh, and cleaning and closure of of wounds. And that was a one-day course at King's College. I'd also recommend um, enhanced care services offer um, minor injuries and minor illness one-day courses as well. Um, and they're really good, so worth looking those up. I can put them in the comments too. Fantastic, fantastic. I'll do it now. Thanks, thank you. And um, Benjamin says thank you too. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> right, here was his question. So our, ne our next question to the panel, um, we'll go along, as, as we go along, uh, we'll monitor the, the Facebook feed as well, so we'll make sure we do get your questions in. Well, I don't um, know if Taryn said that a bit about managing family. Um, oh yeah, sorry, yeah, Karen. Oh, um, <laughs> so I guess I, yeah, I, I took a bit of a career break when I moved over to the UK and it took me an extended period because I'd gone down some non-traditional routes to get my nursing registration here, which could have been a downside, but um, actually opened a whole bunch of doors in terms of being able to have the time and the space to be able to go out and about. And it certainly hasn't affected my career going forward. In fact, I think it's enhanced um, 
my passion for nursing, my passion for medicine, my passion for being outdoors. And I think it definitely increases the longevity of your career. If you've got something outside of your day-to-day -day grind, the NHS can just be something that will wear you down if you let it. So I think having something that you're passionate about and having something that is outside of that, that allows you to apply your skills in a different mindset is really quite key. Um, I'm lucky enough that my, my husband works away on a semi-regular basis. So we've got a little bit of a, an arrangement where when he's away, I, I am a, a more available to perhaps drop everything at a moment's notice and, and um, work as part of a disaster relief effort or a humanitarian response or if an expedition opportunity appears sort of on the horizon then I can start to plan for that as well so yeah it's very much the negotiation with with family and friends negotiation with your career um try uh, I understand that medicine is becoming more and more specialized but I think expedition medicine encourages you to be a generalist so I think allowing yourself that opportunity to um generalize your skill sets don't feel like you need to be a consultant by the time you're 30 just go do you know what I've got a long career I'm not retiring till I'm in my 60s or 70s I, I don't need to be at my career end point in the next decade so so take your time enjoy life um experience the world I guess as I'm the only person here with, with kids I might I might answer on the behalf of the uh the parents out there um, so I actually, I suppose, in in and honestly, I've been a single parent for the last ten years. So that's always been tricky. Actually, it's it's been difficult finding finding a balance between my desire to do expeditions and 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 some of the academic stuff, and running where and doing courses, and also ensuring that I'm a good that I'm a good parent. And I think what I've done there is put kids always come first, but then it's communicating with them exactly. Um, what I'm doing and why sometimes I'm going away. And as they've got older, I've en um, engaged them in that travel. So they've traveled with me to, on dog set to part of Norway, they've been to move me to Brazil. And that's more in terms of them understanding what it is I did as a parent when I went away. So that when I went away and I couldn't take them, they understood, they understood what it was. It wasn't, there wasn't, there was no ignorance around that. And, you know, I'm, and often for the longer trips, when I was perhaps working down in Antarctica, then actually I would ask their permission and would be prepared should they say, if they'd said no, that I wouldn't have, wouldn't have gone. But the fact that they knew what I was doing made it easier for them to say yes, because they understood it. So I think, um, yeah, it's sometimes a bit of a balance, but I think for me, you know, being especially being a single parent, that it always was putting the kids first. So guys, in terms of medical indemnity, what aspects of medical indemnity? Because that's something that, a lot, of a lot of people are keen to pay attention to. It can be quite a stressful aspect of, uh, of, 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 your professional, uh, of your professional registration. What parts of, uh, of, of uh, medical indemnity should we pay attention to from a, a nurse and or doctor perspective? So um, as a doctor, um, I generally had to um, call up my indemnity provider before I was able to commit to any trip and see if they would cover me. Um, personally, I found MDU generally a bit more helpful in terms of expedition medicine than some of the others. Um, but generally, they would need to know information like, were you the sole medic? What kind of supervision was there or was there not going to be available? How many participants were they going to be? Um, where were you going to be? Um, generally, it's quite hard to get cover for American participants on trips. Um, but if it's a group of British participants that you're going to be looking after in whichever environment. Um, generally, you just had to pay a sort of additional add-on subscription and then they would cover you for that period in that country. Um, but yeah, you have to kind of maybe shop around with different indemnity providers. Also, some companies will provide you with indemnity to go on their trips if you're really struggling to get cover. Um, it's worth asking the company directly and saying, look, I'm not able to get cover from this. Are you able to cover me? So it's worth asking. Fantastic. Taryn? Um, yeah, so indemnity is always a tricky one. I have been lucky enough that the organisations I've tended to go overseas with have generally covered the indemnity. Um, I know that the, the College of Nursing and potentially paramedics as well, that they often offer indemnity. Um, there are some differences between whether or not you're going as a volunteer as compared to whether or not you're going as a, a, a 
in a paid role, um, as well as obviously scope of practice massively comes into it as well. So you need to maintain your scope of practice while you're there at all times. Um, US, treating US people is really complicated. Um, being very conscious of your indemnity if you start to be approached, for example, if there's another expeditionary company that may not have the appropriate medical support or kit, if someone comes down unwell, what are your responsibilities under that and are you covered? So there's a lot of a lot of sort of reading into things and, and common sense that you do need to start to apply whether or not that's legally protecting yourself first so that you don't end up in in dire straits versus the, the the moral and ethical need to go well someone needs help I'm going to help them so it's sort of making sure that you go in with as much knowledge as you can knowing what you can and can't do protecting yourself but I, I think the one thing that you can stand by is that I don't think that there's been any successful prosecutions against people who have attempted to do good in these situations so I think that's something to keep in mind but cover your back at the same time yeah Owen, oh, i think it's important that when you when you look at the trips sometimes it's very easy to be overtaken by the glamour perhaps or the your desire to get to a particular destination and see certain things but i think if you start having alarm bells ringing ringing in your head when you've asked the organization the company whomever you're traveling with and they're not giving you reasonable replies about casualty evacuation plans what the insurance backup is whether they've seen the medical forms for people, you know, if, if some of those bells are beginning to, to ring, you need to start thinking about whether it's worth doing that trip because you'll undoubtedly be able to get to that location or do that trip in another way. You shouldn't put your professional reputation and, and possibly your career at risk because of uh, the organisation you're, you're going with, you know, not, not being well, well organised enough. So if your hairs start rising on the back of your neck and you start feeling awkward about a particular trip, pull out mm. and back away. It would be my advice. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And I would echo that really as a paramedic. To it, equally, what you just said there, Mark, and to Taryn's point about the College of Paramedics per, uh, provide indemnity insurance. But again, to both of your points, it's pertinent to be, uh, to, to be attentive to the detail, uh, to define the patient population, so the group that you're going away with. Uh, and as, uh, as Mark said, really, you've really got to get a semblance of what plans are in place for, uh, for Kazivac procedures, what communication modalities are they reliable, and even down to the meticulous, right, I actually want to see the helicopter landing site, I want to know what the coordinates are, or actually, if, if possible, I'd like to see the modalities of transport, and or phone the, phone the numbers, something that that Joe Rolls is very cognizant of that Emma and Terry, you've been on the end of, and I, I firmly believe it myself, is call the numbers for the emergency line just to make sure that people are going to pick up on the end of it um, for, for the Kazivac plan and, and make sure they're aware that they are part of the plan because that's really, it's those kind of levels of details that if you need to enact them, you need to, to know that they actually do work. So absolutely. And I think there's also, um, I think I probably fall into this as well. There's a, <clears throat> as, a as a medic is, or as an expedition do you, doing the risk assessment, you concentrate on the physicality, the physical bit of the experience or the trip or the expedition you're going on, forgetting that your biggest risk of all is the vehicle that gets you from the airport to your drop-off point. That's your point of risk. And that's the bit where when you arrive in country, if your driver is drunk, if the vehicle's not safe, if you're unhappy to get yourself and other people in that vehicle, then you need to you need to find another way. Um, it may, may mean that you're six hours, 12 hours a day late, but you know, rather that than have a vehicle that goes off the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so guys, into the contemporary domain for a second. Uh, not that we've uh, not had enough of the COVID-19 pandemic already, which we well and truly have. Um, how has it changed the game or changed the, the landscape for expedition medicine over, over this period? Well, you can't really leave the country at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I've got to write Emma. I think it scuppered it pretty much for the, for the short term. Um, so I think, I mean, this year I had lots of um, expeditions planned and they've all been cancelled. Um, but I think that shouldn't discourage you. I think that during this time, although we are, 
mostly anyway sort of locked down not able to get out and see as many of our friends and family not able to go to the exciting places we would love to go hopefully that will kind of stir people up to actually think about the dreams and the things that they want to do once they are let loose again and able to go to all these places and actually um, maybe it will kind of almost you know allow us to I can't think what the word is but get that fire burning so that once we're kind of allowed out and about again we can go out and we can keep exploring and hopefully lots more people will want to go out there and start pursuing their dreams and doing amazing expeditions so I think for now it might be on hold but let's see and we are seeing certain destinations and locations beginning to open up and bearing in mind that our audience isn't all English the different travel regulations apply to different people depending on where they are so there are lots of adventures, of course, to have in your own location, but also some of the places that we would traditionally go to are beginning to slowly open up as well. Mm, and maybe take this time to kind of think about what you need to upskill on or areas that you need to work on, whether it's kind of your own sort of self-development um, or thinking about, you know, just, just gaps that you can improve. So just looking at the Facebook feed at the moment, I just wanted to pivot slightly and look at, Greg's just asked around any good training courses located in the United States. If so, could we provide links? Now, none spring to my mind automatically. I'll put, I'll put it to the, to the panelists. And if not, Greg, we'll, we'll, we'll do some background research. But in your minds, can you think of any in the, in the US that spring to mind? I mean, one of the things that's, sorry, Taryn, I thought you were going to speak that. One of the things that's worth considering that in the States, this discipline is more often called wilderness medicine. So, you know, searches under that phrase are likely to elicit more responses than the expedition medicine phrase. Although we're seeing more and more courses in the States use ex uh, expedition medicine and extreme medicine as their phrases. But Taryn, Emma, do you, do you have any, um, any input in terms of US-based courses? Yeah, so I was just having a look because um, I used to, teach in the Caribbean um, and I taught a lot of um, American medical students who are now doing their clinical rotations in the US and one of my students actually sent me um, a few months ago a course that she was going on it was run by Knowles, um, Knowles Wilderness Medicine in partnership with the Harvard Affiliated Emergency Medicine Residency um, and they were doing um, a two-week into the wild wilderness medicine course um, and it, yeah it looks looks great. Knowles Wilderness Medicine, N-O-L-S Wilderness Medicine. Um, so that was being run in the US. So I'm sure they do lots of similar courses. Might be worth looking at. I can put that in the Facebook thing as well, if you like. Fantastic. Yeah, I was just going to re reiterate what Mark said, where definitely wilderness medicine would more be what you'd be searching under, um, but don't have a huge knowledge of the courses over there. Fantastic. Thanks, Taryn. So just looking at a few more questions from the Facebook feed. Yeah. Uh, we've got Austrian asks, uh, do you get to see any snake bites and or spider bites? Is, is that something that you guys have treated much of whilst you've been out in, in these environments? Um, when I was in Namibia, um, I was doing an expedition medicine course out there and I learned all about snake bites and spider bites. But fortunately, um, nobody got bitten by any spiders or any snakes. So I haven't actually personally dealt with anybody who's had a snake or spider bite. So... Actually, I guess I've got the biggest experience in terms of the number of, of expeditions I've led. They're, they're, they're really quite rare. We had a, uh, oh, I can't remember the snake now, in Costa Rica. Oh, and you might remember. What was it? The, um, oh, it's gone from my head. But one one thing to bear in mind that with, especially with adult snakes, the, uh, the and the venomation rate <clears throat> is less than 50% on bites. Often the, the bite can be defensive. Actually, with snakes, what you often have to be much more aware of is is the baby snakes because they have no control of their envenomation so they tend to one envenomate a lot more but two they overload their bites so they can be you know the small baby snakes are the ones actually that are quite tricky envenomations are, are, are rare on expeditions i would say they're often much uh more common with indigenous populations who engage in agricultural production where they're going into the fields Snake bites, um, spider bites, I've never had a significant one within the groups I've led, although occasionally I've heard of them, uh, a couple from Egypt I, that got forwarded to me to try and identify and pass out to the community, community to identify the bite. Scorpions are probably a more significant risk, often because they're moving around at night at the, at the time when people are making their way to do their ablutions. 
you know, if you're not using a torch and if it's a hot environment and you're wear, wearing um, sandals or tevas or whatever, or barefoot, then they're, they're a sort of more normal risk. But again, the only time I've seen a scorpion venomation is when we were purposefully collecting them for the uh, Museum of Northern Territory for samples. And the person I was with, we jumped into the vehicle to take our sample bag of scorpions back to the uh, museum collector and she put it on her lap and the scorpion bit through the bag. So that's really the only time. I suspect people who are working in more tropical and and more desert environments more often may get a slightly higher incidence of both snake and um, envenomations. But from my personal experience of all the years, very few. Um, I guess coming from Australia, we I have looked after a lot of snake bites, um, primarily working in indigenous communities, um, as Mark was alluding to, um, but with sort of the wealth of the public health system behind me. The only snake bite that I've had while on expedition was when looking after um, a bunch of army cadets. So there were 11 to 15 year olds as part of the expedition planning. Um, as we were gearing them up for the trip, we had gone through the whole first aid training process. Um, so we'd gone through in Australia, we talk about the pressure mobilization technique um, and where you're very much splinting the limb and making sure that you've got um, that pressure to prevent the lymphatic spread of the venom. Um, so we've done all of that and I get a message over the radio that um, one of the, the, the patrols that was out sort of um, doing, their, doing their exercise um, that they'd had a snake bite. Obviously, you sort of go, oh, shit, everything's about to get real. Um, so very much went out, but I would have been about 20 to 30 minutes behind um, where they were. That was the amount of time it would have taken me to actually get to the casualty. So we've begun that process um, very much undergoing the um, alerting the, the Kazavak plan so that we knew how we were going to get them out, as well as sort of loading up the med kit, making sure that I had everything that I'd need to go and treat that casualty. Um, when I actually got to the casualty, um, they'd done an absolutely brilliant job um, in terms of doing the first aid. So it was very much a matter of my job was done. They'd even gone to the point of um, marking with a pen where the actual envenomation had occurred, which was brilliant. I think my only, my only um, feedback to them at the end was that you don't necessarily have to use the the air rifle that you're traveling with to split the limb there are things like sticks that are around so it was more around sort of re-educating them that there's other options apart from a firearm um, but in the end it was what we probably either refer to as a dry bite or a stick bite in that there was a sensation there was a mark um, and then potentially some anxiety kicks in or it was a dry bite as Mark said um, and people can certainly get that sensation of feeling nauseous, stressed, hyperventilating. So very much undergo that first aid response, but then start to get them out under the expert, under the um, understanding that it's probably a snake bite. But a lot of the snake bites that we do get in Australia do end up being non-events, which is what we want. Um, spider bites, I've had a few, unfortunately, they, the ones that I have looked after have tended to be testicular spider bites, um, which are incredibly painful, um, but haven't proven to be anything more than that. Um, Owen, Becca Howlett on Facebook was uh, highlighting the fact that Cardiff Wems are hosting a snake bike talk next Wednesday, which I think is on, on Facebook. As, uh, it is on Facebook, yeah. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. So, um, so you guys can can all all tune into that. Um, that would be great. Yeah. And I was going to say the only snake, the only live snake bite I've come across is actually the southwest. And I know there are a few people on the southwest. I saw Swanage come up in somebody's description. Has the highest weight of adders in the whole of the the UK. And actually, um, on the heathlands and cliffs, my my dog has been bitten a couple of times by adders. So. Watch out for the, the Gorseland in the summer. Yeah. Mm, my neighbour's kids are convinced that um, they saw a black widow last week. And I was like, after, I think it probably wasn't a black widow, but they were convinced it was. So I'm hoping it hasn't kind of crawled out of one of my cases that I brought back from somewhere. But be aware, you never know what's around. <laughs> so guys, I'm mindful we've been going for about an hour now and people have been tuning in and we have some fantastic questions. So I just wanted to sort of, just, just start to f finish off with um, a few last questions, really. And so what, what I wanted from each of you, really, is just, 
if you could just give um, those listening and or watching just an illustration of sort of pinnacle moments really that you've had whilst on expedition. So any moments you've had where you've just, you've just stopped and paused and thought this is, you know, it doesn't get better than this. So uh, either, either in the moment or just reflected on um, after it's occurred. I think um, expeditions, if, if it's your thing, if, if, if it's what makes you tick, you know, and it's, and you, and you begin to realize actually the glamour of what it sounds like, the reality is somewhat different in terms of it being, you know, a lot more tiring, a lot more, uh, you're often not getting an awful lot of sleep. Sometimes you're, you're not eating that well and what's coming out there, the end can be disturbed. Um, if you take all that on board and then you, and it still makes you tick, then you get some of the most sublime um, life moments that you could possibly have. And then speaking as, as the only, any, the only parent on this panel, taking your kids with you and make and giving them the opportunity to also share that, um, you know, gives them life experiences that one would hope would turn them into uh, better ambassadors later on as well. Yeah, you get. I, I think the fact that you get to do these things is such a privilege, um, and it's hard to pick just one because often it will just be that that five minutes before everyone else gets up and you're watching the sunrise and you're in this amazing part of the world that you do just get that sense of I, I'm, I'm I'm here and I, I'm doing something that I love and and I think that's worth I it's worth more than anything really um you get to do it as part of a team you get to contribute you get to see these amazing things uh, it's something that the adrenaline of it if it makes you tick then then it makes you tick and it's where you want to be so yeah um just thinking about it like I can physically feel my heart beating faster <laughs> I'm just kind of reminiscing about some of the experiences um I think as both Mark and Taryn have said, you know, it, it's those moments that can change your life and feeling like you're actually helping others to maybe change theirs. So I think often, um, you know, there's people who've been wanting to do this, say, climbing Kilimanjaro for years and years and years, or they've been fundraising for a cause that they really care about, fundraising for a relative who's passed away or their own cause. Um, like the young man with the brain tumor you know I think being able to support people to achieve those goals is incredible and I remember I guess two sort of defining moments would be um one when I finally did reach the peak of Kilimanjaro with um most of the team um just being able to have kind of been there through people's mental and physical struggles and see them achieve that despite having to go up and down <laughs> several times and thinking that it was all going to go wrong. But when you kind of make it to that point and you just see the joy in those people's faces and see the stunning views, it's just amazing. Um, and then secondly, um, I've done quite a few cycle expeditions. Um, and the first one that we did was Vietnam Cambodia cycle. And we finished up um, at sunset at Angkor Wat um, in Cambodia. And it was a stunning scene. And knowing how much these people had you know, struggled through the heat and like just sweating, tired, exhausted, and yet been there to like literally physically push each other along on the bikes to make it to the end. Um, and I've been with a similar group of people, the same, most of the same group for the last five years. And we've just built such friendships. It's something that, you know, when you've been through that together with those people, it really does, it's friendships that will last you through life. And I think I would just to sort of round that off the, you know, certainly from what we do in, in WEM is you know, we do believe strongly that these experiences then bring you back into medicine, a better clinician and give you, you know, increased leadership, problem solving, empathy, you know, the ability to understand that actually the systems we work in, you know, they are pretty good compared to lots of other systems elsewhere where resources are more scarce. Um, and it makes you a better team player. And I think also able to, to just slow down and sort of take things a bit more calmly because you're used to dealing with stuff where you don't have any equipment and everything is a bit more tr tricky. That would be my small input at the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it makes you more resilient, as you're saying as well, more flexible. And um, even if it's painful at the time, 
And it might be type one fun. It might also be type two fun. You look back and think, absolutely, that was one of the best moments of my life. But you, you just reflect back and and think, and it, and it's often high in my experiences hijacked me in the past actually to to the point where you, you're right. You're so engrossed in what you're doing. You look around and there's just majesty before you, absolute majesty. This cloud inversion. You know, you're above the clouds. The sun's rising. You know, you, you're you're all together. You've got that sense of community, and it's 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 just amazing. And it seems to it seems to completely dispel all the negatives that 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 may may have gone before, and it it just makes it all worthwhile. Fantastic, fantastic, guys. So I'm mindful we've been going for seventy minutes now. Um, I'm just looking at Gary Savin's uh, comment. I was charged by two tigers at the same time. That's his expedition <laughs> highlight. I thought that was quite appropriate. Gosh, absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Right, guys. So my thanks to the, my, the panel today for joining us. So my thanks to Mark, Taryn and Emma. Thanks for your perspectives today, guys. And also just thanks to the participation. So thanks for you guys on Facebook um, and or Zoom uh, for, for uh, dialing in and for just for, for your time, getting the perspectives from you as well and, and also your questions uh, they've been valuable questions and hopefully we can get we can start to build this not only this online resource but we've already built the WEM Academy which is a fantastic landing site for most of these resources so it's got um, a fantastic array from the conference to uh, bespoke courses that we run as part of WEM so if, if you want more in the way of resources do, please do head to the WEM Academy uh, online site. So the next future session we're going to be running is session 10, and that's going to be on the 12th of June. So, uh, so um, in a couple of days this, this Friday, and it's going to be with Will Duffin on the special forces mindset in a pandemic. He's going to be joined uh, by a few special guests, uh, Kate Beecher uh, and the likes, to talk about the special forces mindset. Good. So, guys, please do uh, leave feedback um, on uh, on both the social media channels if you can, and or Zoom. Uh, the, the, if you are dialing in via Zoom, there will be a survey monkey at the end of it. But uh, if not, on the uh, on the Facebook feed, I'm mindful it's been 70 minutes of my face on the Facebook feed, which has its pros and cons. Uh, but it's probably tested my IT skills to the limit. So thanks for sticking with me on that one. Um, and we will see you next time um, on the Wemcast live events. So thanks again, guys, for being fantastic panelists. Thanks, Thank you, everybody. Any questions, please ask them on the Facebook. We'll endeavour to ask. Oh, yeah.